Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. Hope you guys are all having a great day. Let me ask you, as I always do, if you find after watching this and listening to it that you enjoyed it or learned something, do me a favor, smash that like button. Now, let's get started. Today, I want to revisit the DNA discussions that took place during the five-hour hearing last Friday in the case of the state of Idaho against Brian Koberger. Koberger is charged with the murders of the four University of Idaho students on November 13th of 2022. The victims are Madison Mogan, Zana Kernodal, Ethan Chapin, and Kaylee Gonsalves. A key piece of the prosecution's case against Koberger is the touch DNA that was on the snap of a leather sheath found at the crime scene. I want to make sure we all know exactly what's being argued about this DNA and other unidentified DNA that was found both inside and outside the student's off-campus house on King Road in Moscow, Idaho. The prosecutors asked Judge John Judge, who's overseeing the proceedings, to issue a protective order on the genetic genealogy information that was used to identify Koberger as a suspect. A protective order would keep all that information confidential so that even Koberger's defense team would not be able to view it. Prosecutors are keen to keep the DNA info locked down. However, Koberger's attorneys are arguing they should be allowed to see the precise process that led to Brian Koberger being identified as the person who left his DNA on the K-bar leather sheath. We know that the FBI used genetic genealogy from that DNA on the snap of the sheath to link Koberger to the crime. That's the most important piece of evidence in this entire case. Investigators turned to genetic genealogy after they couldn't identify a suspect by submitting the DNA from the sheath to a DNA database for known felons, CODIS, which is the acronym for the Combined DNA Index System. That means that no previous offender who's been caught and convicted matched that DNA. That DNA also did not match any DNA entered that was found at previous crime scenes. After CODIS failed to turn up a lead, the investigators contacted a private lab, who then used the touch DNA from the sheath to develop what's called a single nucleotide polymorphism profile. Sometimes people also refer to that more simply as an SNP profile. Once that profile was developed, it was given to the FBI. The FBI then used it to complete an investigative genetic genealogy process. The FBI then shared the DNA profile with various genetic genealogy databases, such as 23andMe. They wanted to see if any close or near relatives of the person with that mystery DNA popped up in the database. Meaning, had any of the relatives of this mystery person submitted their DNA to 23andMe or other databases, if there were any hits, the investigators would see the percentage to which those relatives matched the mystery person. 
The issue with this action of submitting the DNA profile created by the lab to various genetic genealogy databases has to do with privacy laws. Both the privacy rights of the mystery person and the privacy rights of his or her relatives. Koberger's attorney, Ann Taylor, questioned an expert in genetic genealogy last Friday during Koberger's hearing about the websites that allow law enforcement to access the DNA profiles of customers who submit samples. Note that some of these databases allow law enforcement to access their data, but some do not. So Koberger's lawyers asked this DNA expert about the terms of service agreements for each database meaning each database that law enforcement had access to try to find relatives of this mystery person whose DNA was on the leather sheath. The expert said that one of the databases known as GED Match has changed its terms of service. Now when a customer submits a new DNA kit to GED Match, they're asked if they want to opt in to allow law enforcement to search their profile, or if they don't want law enforcement to have access to their profile. So if the FBI accessed GED Match and some of the profile owners did not want their DNA shared with law enforcement, that would constitute a privacy breach. Basically, Koberger's lawyers are trying to find out if the FBI broke any privacy laws when they created a family tree for the mystery DNA. And that's what ultimately led them to the Koberger family, this vast family tree that, as they whittled their way closer to the mystery DNA, finally led them to Brian Koberger's father and then to Brian Koberger. My understanding of all this is that the defense team wants to see if the privacy of any of Koberger's relatives, close or distant, was breached by the FBI. And they also want to know if Koberger's privacy rights were breached when his DNA profile was entered into the genetic genealogy databases without his permission. That's my understanding. I might be wrong, but what I see here is, oh, what a tangled web. But I also see this is how defense teams go about defending their clients. Their role is to try to poke holes and keep the prosecutors honest. Another genetic genealogy database known as Family Tree DNA automatically opts their customers in to allow law enforcement to search the profile. A customer can opt out of this, but they would have to search for that option. I know when I submitted my DNA, I had no idea what my privacy rights were or that law enforcement could go in there and use it. Personally, I don't mind, but if I have any relatives who have committed horrible acts, I've just maybe helped the police find them. Nothing wrong with that. I'm okay with that. So if the FBI accessed the Family Tree DNA database, they are in the clear since this database automatically allows them access. The only caveat would be if there is a customer in there who has opted out of sharing their profile with law enforcement. So ultimately, this is about law enforcement possibly violating the terms of service. If law enforcement accessed a database that they weren't supposed to use, that could lead to possible legal challenges by Koberger's defense lawyers. 
So on Friday, the defense argued that there's so much they don't know about the process that led law enforcement to identify their client as the perpetrator. And they said they feel it's suspicious that they have to fight the prosecution for everything they request. I think they're probably being a little melodramatic with that. I doubt they've had to fight for everything. On the other side of this debate, the prosecution argued that possible violations of these databases' terms of service are not enough to force them, meaning the prosecution, to disclose all of the genetic genealogy information to the defense. The prosecution's other argument on why they shouldn't have to give the defense any more of this DNA-related information is that they've already turned over all the DNA test results that they plan to present at trial. Thus, in their minds, the defense doesn't need to see anything else, any of this other stuff that is not going to be featured during the trial. Now, the judge, Judge John Judge, say that five times fast. Judge John Judge, Judge John Judge. Oy vey. What was I talking about? Oh, right, the judge. The judge is skeptical of the prosecution's argument and said he didn't want to go through an entire trial in a death penalty case and then possibly find out after the fact, during an appeal, that the defense did not have all the genetic genealogy information that it should have had. So it sounds like Judge Judge is concerned. Does anybody else out there find him attractive? So Judge Judge, who I find attractive, did not make a ruling on this issue on Friday because he wanted more time to consider it. Another DNA issue discussed last Friday was the defense team's request to have the court order prosecutors to turn over info about three other male DNA profiles that were found inside and outside the King Road home where the murders occurred. Specifically, one male DNA profile was found on a glove outside the home. That's the glove that Chris McDonough of the interview room happened to spot on the ground within the crime scene tape when he and his wife went to the home to check it out. He pointed it out to an officer on the scene and that glove was then taken into custody. Two other unknown DNA profiles were found inside the house according to the defense. It did not say, though, exactly where in the house those two male DNA profiles were found. In response to the defense team's request to the judge, Lataw County Prosecutor Bill Thompson said they didn't know the unknown male DNA would be an issue brought up in last Friday's hearing. Thompson said, quote, We have given them everything we've received from the lab. They've asked for DNA workups on other people. To the extent that they don't have them, they weren't done. We can't provide something that doesn't exist, end quote. You know what bugs me about these lawyers? Why can't they just put it in a simple sentence? Basically, what I think he was saying was that they didn't upload that DNA into CODIS and they didn't create family trees around it. So what it looks like is the prosecution, once they had the DNA match to Koberger off that sheath, did not pursue testing of any other unknown male DNA found 
inside or outside the home. I wish they'd say where that DNA was exactly inside the house. Maybe it was in places that made it clear it had nothing to do with the crime. Could that be why the prosecution didn't want to test it? Prosecution also said that that DNA was not eligible to be uploaded into CODIS. Why exactly is that? Again, was it in places inside the house that were nowhere near any of the crime scene locations in the bedrooms? Here's what my gut says. The defense team likely knows that DNA has nothing to do with the crime, but they want to use it to create reasonable doubt, which is what defense lawyers do for their clients. That's their job. Maybe the prosecution doesn't want to test it because they know it will only lead to red herrings that have nothing to do with the crime. But unfortunately, when you're a layperson following a case and you hear about male DNA found in a crime scene house that hasn't been tested, it makes you start to question whether the prosecution is trying to hide something. And then we end up with conspiracy theories like the police planted the sheath to implicate Koberger. Well, did they also plant the 11 visits to the King Road residence with Brian Koberger's phone? Did they get somebody to drive a white Elantra that looks pretty much like his over there on the night of the crime? Did they tell him to stand in the kitchen of his parents' house wearing plastic gloves tell him to remove his garbage from that of the rest of the family? And now why would they want to implicate him for the crime? So guys, that's my best explanation of the DNA issues surrounding the Koberger case at this moment. I hope this cleared up some confusion and added to your understanding of last Friday's hearing and of where the defense and the prosecution are right now in their legal tug of war. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories, you know what I'm going to say next. Smash the like button. It's a free way you can help me.